The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Pushkin. This is Solvable. I'm Jacob Weisberg. We're back interviewing leaders and change makers about how to solve the world's biggest problems. And sometimes it starts with looking back at our own history. When, if ever, did were, were we like other countries? Back in 1970, we incarcerated at the same rate as other countries in this world. The killing of George Floyd has brought calls for transforming policing into the national spotlight. With so many people taking to the streets demanding action now, we have to maintain our confidence that even the hardest problems related to racial justice can be solved. How do you break this problem down into solvable pieces? Decide to stop prosecuting and charging low-level crimes. Don't criminalize those behaviors. Justice isn't blind. We have to be far more critical and thoughtful and have that lens on. Today, we're going to talk about how to solve mass incarceration. This is such a solvable problem. Incha Rachman used to work as a public defender in the Bronx. That job illuminated, for her, the variety of state and national level problems with the criminal justice system. The U.S. has 5% of the world's population but currently holds 25% of the world's incarcerated people. Rockman is the Director of Strategy and New Initiatives at the Vera Institute, an organization devoted to improving the criminal justice system in the United States. Rockman thinks those extremely disproportionate numbers represent a problem we can solve. Incha, I'm so excited to talk to you today about this because mass incarceration is something I think a lot about and I know a lot of our listeners are super interested in. I wonder how you define the problem as something we can solve. 
Yep. We have 2.3 million people behind bars today. That's uh, 750,000 people in jails and another 1.5 million in prisons. And it's actually solvable. So what's your plausible goal to get it down from 2.3 million, you said, in jails and prison to what number? If we just look at the average incarceration rate across the rest of the world, and if America were to incarcerate at that rate, we would get down from 2.3 million to 360,000. That's something like doing the math in my head, a factor of seven. Yep, that's a remarkable number when you think about it. And that's what we could and should and can actually do if we decide to do business differently from the beginning of the system to the end. And just since George Floyd's killing, we've been in the midst of a national, even an international movement against police violence and for racial justice. Does that change the opportunity around the incarceration? It does, but only if we make enough of this moment. And one thing that I want to point out is that for many of us, it feels like a moment of opportunity to make sure that the path we walk to get here with the criminal justice system that we have, the path moving forward isn't the same. But we have to also stop and acknowledge the moment of incredible pain and hurt and harm that has happened, that it took the senseless and ruthless killing of a Black man by a police officer with his knee to his neck um, for the country to actually realize what actually happens with impunity each and every day in this country. And it's not just uh, a crisis of now, but it's a crisis that's been here literally since slavery. So yes, there is opportunity, but we actually won't make enough of the opportunity if we don't recognize the long history and roots that got us to this place where we all feel like it's not only crisis, but a moment of hope. Um, But it really is a moment of crisis. And we have to lean into that first before we think about the opportunity in the moment. These two issues of police violence and mass incarceration are obviously so closely related. They're two sides of the same coin. They're part of the same system. Are you concerned that we may be pointed towards improving the one without addressing the other? What we have seen since the video went viral of George Floyd's murder is states and cities and even the federal government has moved to ban chokeholds to uh you know, spend less money on policing and more in communities. And all of that is a great start. But if that's where we start and that's where we end, yes, we've missed the larger opportunity to say, what do we do about 2.3 million behind bars? 2.3 million people behind bars. It's such a shocking number. It's one of those numbers you almost don't process. You just, you know, hear it. It's so many, it's got so many digits. Has the United States ever had a normal level of incarceration? When were we ever like other countries, if we were ever like other countries? We weren't always this way. Um, In the 1970s, we actually had the same rate of incarceration as other countries that we think of as our peers, as England and France and Germany. But what changed is that in the 1970s and 1980s, as the whole world went through a crisis of recession, economic setbacks, Um, Countries like Western European countries invested in the social services net. They invested in responses that weren't just punitive. And what America did was take a different trajectory. We went to truth in sentencing, tough on crime, the war on drugs, and that led us to the outlier that we are today. Of course, for anyone who hasn't seen it, the Ava DuVernay documentary 13th gives an amazing sense of the continuity between slavery, policing, and mass incarceration. 
this is a 400-year history, but it also does have these big landmarks. One of them that comes up a lot is the crime bill in 1994 that Congress passed and Bill Clinton signed, which was kind of a consensus bill. It was supported by Republicans and Democrats. And there were you know, billions of dollars in that bill for building jails and prison, as well as for, for increasing police and, and arming police. I mean, do you think of that as the real modern watershed in mass incarceration? It was certainly the accelerant on a system that was already on fire. The 1994 crime bill, by the way, enjoyed broad support from Democrats and Republicans, including many Black members of Congress at the time, because that was all that was on offer to, in theory, help communities um, from crime and from violence. What the difference has been from now, 25 years on from when the crime bill was passed, was we recognize that there are other options and there are cheaper options. There are options that don't result in the wanton killing of black and brown people in this country that we can invest in. And that will actually deliver true public safety. I mean, there seems to be a certain kind of consensus now about some kinds of reform. There was the First Step Act uh, that Donald Trump signed. And even uh, now, post-George Floyd, you know, Donald Trump has supported a bill that uh, would ban, I guess, some but not all chokeholds. But I mean, first of all, do you see the opportunity for real reform at the moment? And are you worried that when you do have these moments of consensus, like in 94, you sort of go with the lowest common denominator and don't think through the potential consequences of, of what you're doing? When the First Step Act passed a couple of years ago, for some, um, it was hailed as a remarkable watershed moment in that it was the first time in decades that the federal government had really stepped in on a criminal justice issue, and that was led by a Republican administration, no less. But if you actually look at what the First Step Act did, which it released uh, a couple thousand people from prison, which actually touches only a fraction of our overall 1.5 million people in prison and doesn't even touch people in state prisons, you really sort of get a sense of just how much of a first step and a tiny first step at that it was. Here's the fascinating thing about this moment, Jacob, is that the calls right now in the wake of George Floyd's murder and the murder of so many other Black people at the hands of the police, it's not just for things that are a minuscule first step. It's actually calls like defund the police and to dismantle the police, as we saw the Minneapolis City Council vote to do. And so that's the opportunity of now is that where consensus is, is so much further uh, to, I would say, it's not even so much further to the left. It's so much further towards looking for a real transformative solution and not just tinkering around the edges. Into there's so many different components to this problem from bail reform to sentencing reform to police reform to what happens to prisoners post-release. How do you break this problem down into solvable pieces and how do you prioritize which are the most important pieces? Yeah. So I think of this problem as having three components and, you know, how do we get from the 2.3 million to 360,000? The first is the reckoning and acknowledgement of the racial disparities and making policy choices and practice choices differently. So one concrete example is I was once sitting in a prosecutor's office and I saw on his desk a map of the city and he actually had literally circles around neighborhoods. And I asked, what are those circles? And he said, well, those are the neighborhoods where 
They're predominantly black and brown communities that live there. And so when we get a case that comes from the police from those neighborhoods, we actually sort of double check it, triple check it to make sure that we are thinking carefully about whether or not to prosecute this traffic stop or this drug arrest. We know that these are the communities where the vast majority of cases in the city are coming from. And so we're making an active decision to look carefully and make a choice of whether we're going to move forward or not. It's basically saying justice isn't blind. We have to be far more critical and thoughtful and have that lens on. The second part is to do everything we can do to choose not to put people in jail and prison to quote unquote decarcerate. And so bail reform is a really obvious way to limit the number of people who go to jail. Moreover, we can make different decisions on sentencing, actually addressing the underlying harms that led to that person doing that harmful act in the first place or addressing what can change the circumstances of your life so that that actually never happens again. And then the third part is for when we do incarcerate, we need to do it radically differently than how we currently do it. And what that looks like is my organization, Vera, partnered with the Department of Correction in Connecticut to actually transform some of the prison units. There are maximum security units. They look much more like life on the outside. The young men who are there go to school or they work every day. They are quote unquote paid in sort of rewards and points where they get more privileges and free time and things like that if they are able to be more productive members of that community. And they actually talk through conflict in what are called restorative circles, where you talk it through as opposed to using punishment and discipline as the first reaction. And what we've seen is that radically different way of actually doing incarceration has tremendous impact. Officers who work, they say, this is the the most relaxed place in prison I have ever been. It feels comfortable. I actually feel safe. And so let's talk about COVID-19 for a minute. The pandemic is creating a kind of natural experiment in decarceration. People are being let out. A lot of people have a visceral reaction that there's going to be more crime if you let more people out of prison. The decline in crime did correlate with mass incarceration. Why are people wrong to think that de-incarceration will lead to an increase in crime? That's actually not true. It's not statistically true from the research. And it's also not true what we've seen in concrete examples around the country. Today in New York City, our jail population is down to less than 4,000 people in jail from a high of 22,000 back in the early 1990s. Back then in the city, we had over 3,000 homicides a year. And last year, we had about 300 homicides. That's a radical change in the level of crime and public safety. And that's actually the statistics that are true when we incarcerate less. Who are the people we really shouldn't let out? Even if we let out six out of seven, who's the one out of seven? And I hear even uh, reform advocates making a lot of exceptions. We shouldn't let people out who are convicted of domestic violence. We shouldn't let out violent offenders. We shouldn't let out sex offenders. We shouldn't let out white collar criminals. You know, should we let Bernie Madoff out of prison? Who are the people that you think in the end we shouldn't let out of prison? So I think that framing of the question is the wrong one. And so I'm going to push back on it. Um, the question is, who can we let out? And the, the answer is folks who are 
safe and ready to walk among us, who are actually the vast majority of people who are currently behind bars. And how do we know that? It's not based on the crime that you were accused or convicted of. Those folks who were convicted of a murder when they were 18 or 19, and they've been behind bars for 20 years, they are no longer that same person who committed a violent act 20 years ago. And how do we know that? superintendents and wardens saying, I would have this guy as my neighbor. I would have this person as my family member. There are, because it is mass incarceration, there are a huge number of people whose jobs and livelihoods are working working in prisons. Right. How do you get prison guards to support de-incarceration? Workforce development. Where we've seen prisons is often in more rural parts of the country or more rural parts of a state where they are the biggest employer in many of these small towns and cities that they're in. And so that is the key way to get them on, quote unquote, our side, because I actually don't know that it's a matter of sides. Give them skills um, that, you know, put us in the 21st century that aren't necessarily factory work. Likewise, we have to get out of the 20th century mentality of a prison guard job, which is passed down from generation to generation in, in a prison town. And the pandemic has really brought together, I would say, strange bedfellows. Because who else really suffers when we don't decarcerate our jails and prisons and they are tinderboxes for this pandemic? The staff, the corrections officers and other medical staff and workers who work in jails and prisons and not only are there and as susceptible to getting the virus as the people who are incarcerated there, but they go home to their families and to their communities and therefore are at much higher risk of transmitting the virus and spreading it in those local towns where um, where the prisons and the jails are. And so in this moment, we've actually seen uh, prison staff and, uh, you know, corrections unions call for the same things that we are calling for, which is uh, decarceration, making sure that we are letting out as many people as we can to manage the pandemic. And then for those who remain incarcerated, to make sure that they have personal protective equipment, that they have access to hand sanitizer. And Congress in this moment of stimulus bills can actually pass a, a reverse mass incarceration act to give billions of dollars to cities and to states to actually reverse mass incarceration, to invest in workforce development and to actually close jails and prisons and invest in the alternatives that actually will overall over time, as New York City has shown us, make us safer. I always like to ask our guests on this show what listeners can do. If they, if they care about this problem. What are a couple of things that, that people can do to accelerate the decline of mass incarceration? There are some great books out there right now, more books than we've ever seen about mass incarceration. James Foreman's Locking Up Our Own, which is, he's a former public defender and now a professor at Yale, writing about Washington, D.C. Great sort of inside look into the politics um, of law and order that sort of gave rise to what we have. Another great book that I recommend is Albert Woodfox, who spent many, many years behind bars, um, his book called Solitary, which is a terrific and gripping read. And you mentioned Ava DuVernay's 13th, which is an excellent documentary about the rise of mass incarceration. And I highly suggest for folks to have a movie night and uh, watch 13th with your friends, your family, and have a conversation about it. Second, you can get involved in in very concrete ways, and it doesn't require you giving up your day job and becoming a full-time advocate or activist. 
In November, uh, there will be hundreds of prosecutor races that are on the ballot. And get to know your local prosecutor. Get to know what their policies are. What are you going to do about charging? What are you going to do about bail? How are you going to handle plea bargaining? And to make sure that when they say that they are progressive, because that is a moniker that many people are using when it comes to criminal justice reform right now, make sure that actually has meaning. Are they willing to make their data transparent? of how they make decisions about charging? Are they willing to come to town halls and meet with community members and hear what do they want to see from their local prosecutor? Those are all very concrete ways in which you as a person can change the face of your local criminal justice system. For listeners who don't think of themselves as progressives, I, th- I think we you know, might even have a few conservative listeners to the show. Is there something different that you would encourage them to do? Yes, absolutely. So I would encourage them to think about what conservative means when it comes to the criminal justice system, because there's actually many conservative organizations and elected officials who agree with me, and I am most definitely not somebody of the conservative ilk, but who agree with me that mass incarceration as we know it should change. And they agree that prosecutors should rely on incarceration less and consider alternatives to incarceration. One other concrete thing that people can do if they have uh, the ability to do so is you can contribute very concretely to getting people out of jail. Uh, There are community bail funds all across the country. There's over 50 of them and uh, people are raising money to bail people out of jail because oftentimes people are there on $250, $500 and they just can't afford the price of their freedom. And especially in this moment where we have seen increased immigration detention and immigration enforcement despite the pandemic, there are several immigration bond funds across the country that are helping to bail people out of immigration detention. It's not necessarily systemic change, but it is a very obvious way to make a difference and to help in this moment to actually get us down from 2.3 million. Inja, thanks so much for joining us on Solvable. Thanks so much for having me, Jacob. Solvable is brought to you by Pushkin Industries. And as a reminder, we always include links to the suggestions our guests make about how you can get involved in the episode notes listed in your podcast player. Solvable is produced by Camille Baptista, Jocelyn Frank, and Catherine Girardeau. Mia Lobel is our executive producer. We'll be back next week with another episode in our series about racial justice. Malcolm Gladwell will talk with Chirag Baines about how police impunity is solvable without compromising public safety. I hope you'll join us. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at T-Mobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. 
Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. You know, I love music, but I haven't picked up an instrument in years. You know why? I tell myself, I don't have time. Where am I going to find a teacher? Well, there's an answer. Musora. Musora is the place where you can learn essential skills and techniques with more than a hundred of the world's best teachers and musicians and thousands of famous songs. You get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 per month, less than a single private lesson. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com to start a new musical journey today.